Our second lesson comes to us from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. I will be reading from the book known as The Message, which is its own interpretation of the text, as fair as any other, but it is also written in more familiar and colloquial language. Hear now the word of God. If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him, and work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest, and try again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. If he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start over from scratch. Confront him with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. Take this most seriously. A yes on earth is bound on earth, is a yes in heaven, is bound in heaven. And a no on earth is a no in heaven. What you say to one another is eternal. I mean this. When two of you get together on anything at all on earth and make a prayer of it, my Father in heaven goes into action. And when two or three of you are together because of me, you can be sure that I'll be there. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Oh God, may these words be words of reconciliation. In the name of Christ, amen. I was in a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a 37-year-old woman about uh, church and organized religion, and she was asking me why we needed those things. If you believe in God and you have a relationship with God, she asked, isn't that enough to be in relationship? Or why do we have to have this, this organized thing to be faithful? Sounding like so many her age who consider themselves spiritual but not religious, they call themselves nuns, I started to get my back up but thought better of it and decided actually to ask her a question. Did you have a bad experience in church when you were growing up? No, she said. But what I see today are churches half full of mostly older people fighting over politics and Bible about who's right and who's wrong, or rock and roll churches full of mostly younger people who don't argue over anything because they're told to think just like the preacher. Whoa, I said, sounding a little defensive. Is one of those kinds of churches the kind of church you grew up in? Of course not. I loved our church, she said. Then how about the preacher? Was he one of those mean, self-righteous, holier-than-thou, scary types? No, daddy, she said. (laughs) 
you were only scary that time Megan and I came back from curfew 30 minutes late and you, I know Amanda, I'm so sorry, I, I, I apologize again, I'm so sorry. She goes, Daddy, I forgave you long ago. Then it hit me. The answer to her question about why church, institutional church matters is that she forgave me. So I ask, and where did you learn about forgiveness, Amanda? Uh, the church? That conversation has inspired me, maybe not you, but me, to answer her question about why institutional church matters and why we need Christian religion in our world today through a three-part series. I've never done series in my life until I became an interim minister. And, I, and um, I, just go with me if you don't mind. As we start our cycle of our new church school year and all the classes and events that come with it, for the next three weeks I'll be preaching using Matthew's lectionary text on the vision of what Jesus thinks about church and religion and what kind of church Jesus thinks we should be, whether Jesus' vision is popular or not. Now, some people will say, it doesn't matter what you say, preacher. You can get up there and preach till you're blue in the face. It doesn't matter that trying to revive interest in the church these days is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. But I disagree. This church, for instance, I think is a good example of what a relatively healthy church looks like. Relatively, everything's relative. Because it is what I would call a purple church. A church full of blue and red leaning people, blue being more on the left and red being more on the right, who know that they don't have the truth by themselves, but that they need the other truth to make up a fuller truth of both. That they and we know that there is no full truth in any of us by ourselves and that we need each other in community to be complete. This is true in all of life, but we don't do it in all of life. We do it in church. And all the data shows that one, if not the major problems facing our postmodern world and culture is the loss of socialization and connection and community with others and with another God, a being that transcends our own teeny, weeny, self-righteous ego self. So the diagnosis I have for our culture is that we're suffering from heart disease. And the symptoms that come with it are alienation and loneliness and despair and anger and depression and the need to get back. Most of our institutions, in fact, have grown old and are suffering from hardening of the arteries. As we become more independent and individuated, more politically and religiously strident, we've grown less socialized and relational. We've been made harder. 
and is having a huge social, emotional, physical, and spiritual effect on our well-being. Our arteries are clogged with social media and the myths that come with them and power politics and our hearts are all aflutter with the AFib of our own self-righteousness. Turns out sin is what it is and it's not new. The consequences are ever present, excuse me, present in the best of circumstances. But it is never so present and never so destructive than in the people and institution who claim to be righteous. Righteousness comes from our taking ourselves too seriously and the transcendent mystery and otherness of God not seriously enough. Righteousness comes from thinking we know the truth, you don't. It comes from judgment and gives birth to violence and lying and deceit that we use to justify our righteousness. It causes hardening of the arteries and there are plenty of churches and institutions in this world and in our country with this kind of angina, but not all. This church, as I said, seems to be in pretty good heart health. The echocardiogram of our congregational survey as part of our search for the new pastor reveals that we're pretty good shape. When you look at the numbers, I agree. There's plenty of interest in classes. New classes uh, seem to be popping up all over the place. You're showing up. You are willing to serve. You're willing to be served. You're willing to jump in. You come to church. You sing. You participate. This church is not that full of crisis and conflict. It has its own, but it's not that full of it. Some of it may be that we live on an island as an environment, but I don't know. You know, it's less littered with the junk food of the culture out there, but we have our own junk food here, to be sure. But I think it's more to do with leadership. I think this church has had a history of great leadership. Not just in the amazing pastors that you have had, but in the amazing members that you are. You have healthy leaders. And all churches, like all families, like every other institution, is only as good as the leadership. That said, you're not immune to dissension, parking lot conversations, and broken relationships. It has had plenty of conflict in every other family or church. Why not here too? And you have your own particular brand of family dysfunction. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. However, healthy churches are able to own their own dysfunctions and their mistakes and their unrighteousness and their struggles Healthy churches are able to share their vulnerability and to be honest 
And this is where I think real Jesus community happens. It happens when we practice the really hard work of authentic humility, confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. It is the hardest work of all. And the way we learn how to do this is by practicing it. This is made clear, I think, in this morning's passage from Matthew 18 and in our passage from 2 Corinthians that John so perfectly read, by the way. Thank you. If anyone is in Christ, that one is a new creation. All this is from God who reconciled himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ was in God reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And in Matthew's, it's pretty clear. Matthew says, if someone hurts you or sins against you, before you triangle anybody else in, before you call your friend and whine and complain, you go to that person when you are calm and sit down with them, giving them the benefit of the doubt that maybe you didn't understand what they meant or said, or that maybe they were not right about their judgment. Just have a conversation. Listen to each other. And then if that person refuses to admit that they had hurt you and it was intentional, then you go to two people as leaders and ask them to join you and go back to them and have the same conversation. And then if they are not willing then to do it, you go to the whole church and ask the whole church in small parts. It wouldn't work in a 700 member church. Remember Matthew's writing to family house churches, there are probably at most 15 or 20 people there. It's a lot closer unit than this. I mean, 700 people, I don't think that would necessarily be seen as reconciling. But the point is, even hyperbolically, you do whatever you can to go to the person who has now become estranged from the church because they have done something they feel guilty about but are not able to own it. You go to them as many times as you can, giving them the chance to come back through apology and through forgiveness. Now Matthew writes this right after Jesus had been walking with his disciples and one of the disciples said, Master, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Because they wanted Jesus to say, you are, or or, or, you know, Simon is, or Andrew is. And, and Jesus says, I'll tell you who's the greatest. So he reaches out and grabs a child. In that day, children didn't have the cachet that they have in our culture. They didn't come up and sit on the steps. They were always in the back, quiet and disciplined. Their job was to work and to be quiet. And they practiced spoil spoil the child if you what is it spare the rod spoil the child that was the culture so when Jesus grabs this child he's holding up the 
epitome of what it looks like to be a humbled person. And he said, unless you are like one of these, you will not be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes into this, if someone sins against you, go to them. If they don't work, get two people. If that doesn't work, go to the church. And what he's saying in this passage is that the possibility of that person who has done that getting excommunicated or walking away from the church cannot happen. That you, we are called to do everything we can to bring that person back into relationship into the church because it's always the person who has committed the wrong and is unable to admit it that feels themselves on the outside. And that's the one Jesus is talking about going to. Those who feel like they can't come back. It's interesting, the passage goes on to say that that if they don't listen to the church, you don't throw them out either. What you do then is you treat them like tax collectors and Gentiles. Well, by then the Gentiles were part of the church. They were on the outs and now they're in. And tax collectors, you remember the story of Zacchaeus? Come down from the tree and I'll go eat with you, Jesus says. And he brings them back into community. And Matthew, supposedly the writer of the gospel, had certainly Matthew's influence, if not Matthew himself. And Matthew was the tax collector that Jesus called to be a disciple. So what he's saying is never give up. You go back over and over again so that that person will not be excommunicated and alienated from the community of Jesus. So daughter, Amanda, and all the daughters and sons in the world, this is the first reason I think that Christianity matters. And that is because in a church that's following Jesus' example, we are a church that is a safe place of inclusion and fellowship where we practice confession, which we do every single Sunday and forgiveness and, and reconciliation and restoration. Where did you learn about forgiveness, I ask? She got it. So where else do we find these values these days? Where else do we find these virtues of being Christ-like practiced? If not practiced, at least Lift it up. How often do we encounter a group of people willing on their own to own their stuff, to own up, to apologize and confess? We do it every Sunday, as I said. Where else do we find the power of forgiveness and, and reconciliation so freely given by grace through the cross of Jesus Christ simply for asking for it? Where else is the hope and work of reconciliation so important and the demand for restoration of the whole body of believers being brought back into unity? Here's the thing. 
It flips everything we understand about get back, about quid pro quo, about an eye for an eye on its head. Because this hard practice of confession and forgiveness is again not so much for the one who has been harmed, but for the one who did the harming. For the one who hurt the other, but too righteous to admit it. In an amazing book, little book by Cole Arthur Riley, a woman pretty much the age of my daughter, brilliant writer, her book called This Here Flesh, she writes, reconciliation is so elusive because so few ever occupy a seat of sincere remorse. Call it archaic, but I think confession is liberation. It is easy to think that in injustice only the oppressed have their freedom to gain. In truth, the liberation of the oppressor is at stake. If unconfessed, our guilt mutates into shame, which is much more sinister and decidedly heavier on the soul. It doesn't just weigh on the heart, it slithers into the gap of every joint, making everything swollen and tender, and we learn to walk differently in order to carry the shame, and then we become prone to manipulate things like nearness and connection and community just to relieve our own swelling. When wounders, that is those who wound, finally become exhausted of their dominion and dismantle their delusion of righteousness and begin to tell the truth of their offense, a sacred rest becomes available to them. Then you can just sit down and be in your own flawed skin. End of quote. Whew. And I would add you can just sit down and be in others' own flawed skin too. For everyone in our culture fighting against hate and blame and self-righteousness, the church and the voice of the church is never more needed. For it may be the only place in the world that I know of, other than families, and even that sketchy, where the one who committed the sin is as important as the one the sin was committed against. And the one who committed the sin is as welcome back into the community as the one who was hurt. And when the church is practicing this kind of Christ-likeness, humility and confession and forgiveness, this is the place where real people, heart ached as we are, broken, trying, looking for community, this is the place where real people gather. Because it's the thing, whether we're able to admit it or not, that we most hunger for. We hunger for it. And God and Jesus know we will not rest until we find our rest in God and in each other. In Christ's name, amen.